<laughs> and even right. when you go to 100% renewable, you know what's working in the background. Wait, say that again. When you go to 100%, 100% renewable generation, you know what's working in the background. What? You have to have a battery. You have okay. to have something that can maintain voltage and frequency, something that can steady or absorb the variation. Even if you're operating at 100%, there is some variability in wind and solar. A cloud, yeah. a wind speed. Well, <laughs> Welcome to the World Changing Podcast. Was that too much? Yeah, that was probably too much. But let's keep it, we'll keep it anyway. How about this? If we do the podcast and the world doesn't change, then we can take that out. Welcome to the World Changing Podcast, where we deconstruct the projects and products that are moving us towards a decentralized and carbon-free future. We'll talk to the skeptics, supporters, and innovators in the fields that depend on electricity to run their industries, which is changing every single day. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, co-founder of Aston Labs, a decentralized infrastructure company. And on the other side of the camera here, we have Flo Lumsden, our producer, and she will make sure that the train stays on the tracks while we do this. Okay, everybody, I am so excited for this episode. We have Gary Ratcliffe. Gary Ratcliffe is the Vice President of Market Development and Innovation at Hitachi Energy. Hitachi Energy is responsible or at least their technology underlies half of the top 250 power utilities in the world. I met Gary through a project that Aston Labs is working on. It's one of those projects where, and I guess we talk about it a little bit in the episode, conceptually, where we're trying to do some really big industrial applications with zero fossil fuels, and very high uptime at an affordable price because industrial customers won't stand for anything else. You know, when you're going to do something that complex, you bring in people like Gary Ratcliffe. That's how we met. I mean, obviously you hold him in very high esteem, his team and the company. Up until recently, it was called ABB. And I've known ABB since the minute that I walked into the electricity industry. The grid. How do you decarbonize the grid? One of the biggest pieces that's missing from this conversation of getting rid of fossil fuels, getting rid of carbon on our grid is transmission. We're starting to see articles about it. Even today in the New York Times, we've seen it in The Economist. And this missing piece is transmission. So we have Gary Ratcliffe to talk about that piece. The grid, it's one of the most complex machines that we've ever built. We have complex problems, which obviously is gonna include complex answers. And Gary helps us pick apart all of these pieces. Uh, in this episode, Gary's gonna give us this real story of his career evolution, but we need to start with his list of credentials. Gary, currently holds the position of the VP of Market Development and Innovation for North America at Itachi Energy. Gary focuses on the energy transition, modernizing the grid, is an industry leader and serves as the expert advisor to utilities, government agencies, and industry associations on the best practices for clean energy, grid modernization, smart grids, and digitalization. 
Gary is a member of the Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Advisory Committee for the Department of Commerce. He's on the Gridwise Alliance Technical Council, the E4 Carolinas Innovation Council, and the International Electrotechnical Commission Smart Energy Systems Committee, where he serves as a technical advisor. Gary holds a bachelor's degree in electric power engineering from RPI and an MBA from Carnegie Mellon. He's a registered professional engineer, IEEE senior member, has co-authored a transmission and distribution planning book, and has written numerous technical papers and articles on the topic. Why has it been a big deal to get Gary on the show? The reason it was a big deal to get Gary on the show probably stems from some kind of like deep insecurity of my own, which is that a lot of circles that I'm in, people ask me questions about electricity and I'm supposed to have the answers. And then when I talk to Gary, I feel like I have no answers. I just have questions. And I want, I've, it's been a big deal to have Gary on the show. Obviously, I'm excited to ask these questions, but then also just like, I don't think I've been as nervous to have a record, to record somebody on the podcast as I was for Gary, because I was just like, man, some of these topics are so deep and complex and I don't want to lose that complexity. Yeah, that's why. And I love, you know, once I really wrap my head around the terms that I'm going to share in this intro, I could follow along. Maybe not to the degree someone who's in this industry all the time could, but I, I learned a lot. And I think that's empowering as someone who wants to support efforts to make the grid more environmentally friendly, more efficient and smarter. It's empowering to know what our options are and if there's an opportunity to support those. So I hope that folks who aren't in the industry will also try to get through this with us because it's a great learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, That was a good spot. Flo is going to help us with some definitions and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. So one of my goals for this show is to make these conversations a little bit more followable for anyone like me who may not be in the industry, but wants to learn. So I wanted to define a few terms. These are also in the show notes. We talk a lot about transmission and distribution in this conversation. So a transmission line carries electric energy from one point to another in an electric power system. They can also carry alternating current or direct current or a combination of both. Transmission lines are important for moving energy around. HVDC, or a high voltage direct current electric power transmission system, offers long distance power transmission, improved integrity of renewable energy, and the ability to connect different power grids together. Solar PV, so PV stands for photovoltaic, and it gets its name from the process of converting light photons to electricity, which is also called the photovoltaic effect. This is another fancier way to describe solar power. Load versus generation. Load is another word for the demand for electricity on the power grid at any given time, or it's the total electricity being consumed or removed from the grid by the users of the grid. Dispatchable power versus non-dispatchable power comes up a lot in this conversation as well. These two terms refer to the ability of a power source to be controlled and adjusted to meet fluctuating demand for electricity. 
Dispatchable power sources currently include fossil fuels, hydrogen, geothermal, and biomass power. Non-dispatchable power, also known as intermittent or variable sources, are those that cannot be easily controlled or scheduled to match the electricity demand. Examples include solar power, wind power, wave, and tidal power. These fall into the non-dispatchable category because their availability is, is influenced by weather conditions and natural phenomenon. We talk a lot about gigawatts of power. So how much can one gigawatt power? How can we think about that in every, everyday terms? So one gigawatt is enough to power about 7,500,000 homes, or three quarters of a million homes can be powered by one gigawatt. I like to keep that in mind because when we're throwing around 13 gigawatts of power, that's a lot of power. Lastly, 100% uptime refers to the reliability of the power supplied. It is referring to perfect or near-perfect reliability with no power outages. All right, let's get going. You've spent, is it fair to say you've spent all of your career in power? In Probably fair. Power grid. I was just going to, I was just going to stop and be like, why? No, as I always have to ask everybody this question. What, what, was there something as a kid that you did or that you were exposed to or that your parents did or they exposed you to that kind of prepared you or led you into what you do? today. And that can be what led you to going into power grid work or even for today. Is there something that you were exposed to as a kid that helps you in this? I mean, there's a lot of change right now in this industry, I'm assuming from, from when you, well, it makes when it you got exciting into today. it. Right. Yeah. Is there anything from that you can point to in your, of your younger years that led you to this? I'm not sure. Maybe my father was an electrician. Okay. When I was in school, did well in what people now call STEM courses. Mm -hmm. So a logical, I guess, up career path for me was to go to an engineering school and get an engineering degree. Yeah. And I decided since my father was an electrician, maybe I would focus on electrical engineering. Yeah. But I made a decision early on once I was at the college where I did my undergraduate work. In electrical engineering, there's electronics, and then there's everything else. Right, yeah. I guess this happened because of, again, my father. He was very focused on getting job experience. And when I graduated from college, he absolutely wanted me to have a job so that it'd be <laughs> office pay, payroll, gainfully employed, cost recovery, if you will, on, on right. the cost of the tuition. He was all in on that. I think he might have been happier if I'd gone to a, a school in Boston that had mandatory co-op jobs. So uh, yeah. as a freshman, he insisted that I go to the co-op office yeah. and sign up. And I said, I told him, I said, they don't interview freshmen. Freshmen don't get co-op jobs. Yeah. As it turned out, I was wrong <laughs> and he was right. So I did go to the co-op office. I did fill out the form and uh, as a freshman and the person in the office said, oh, do you want to meet our co-op advisor? Not the guy who ran it, but he was the assistant co-op program director at the school. And I said, I'm a freshman. She said, oh, he's available. Why don't you go in and meet with him? So I went and talked with him and he said, I talked about what I was doing and that I was basically focusing on electrical engineering, but hadn't really decided on electronics or power. But as it turned out, who knew? He actually knew my father <laughs> rather well and actually knew me 
But at that time, 15 years when I was like three years old. Wow. And uh, didn't think much of it. I said, yeah, I'll mention to my dad, I saw you and talked with you and I'll tell him you sent your regards. Anyway, I got a call late in my freshman year. Do you want to go to work for Boston Edison, which is the utility in the Boston area? It's now part of Eversource. And I did. So I took the fall semester of my sophomore year and I went to work for a utility and had that early exposure where the program I had, they had me doing everything for going out to test power transformers before they were energized, to checking accuracy of meters, mm. working in, in one of their yards. And then I went back and worked for them the following three summers. And mm. so I had a lot of exposure to the power, power engineering side, which reinforced the program. And as it turned out, the school I went to I would argue had the number one power engineering program literally in the world while I was there. Half of the class my graduate year was foreign students Wow! and yeah. uh, went to work for Westinghouse Electric. That's and Westinghouse Electric became... So the Westinghouse the Electric T&D company became what was called Westinghouse ABB Power T&D Company. Then they mm-hmm. dropped the Westinghouse. Yep. And basically became ABB. And then in 2020, ABB and Hitachi formed a joint venture mm-hmm. with Hitachi having majority ownership of that joint venture at 80%. Mm-hmm. Last December, they bought out the remaining 20%. So yeah. where I started, basically that business, that T&D business continued from yeah. Westinghouse to ABB. And now it's 100% Hitachi owned. Wow. And some things have changed since you started. A few things have changed, (laughs) just a few. I think the biggest things that have changed is the digital technologies over over the time period. And what we do with computers today, my phone has more power than the computer I used when I first started working. I think the digital communication technologies, that's transforming our industry. When people ask me what my job title is, Mm -hmm. you know, market development and innovation. But what I do is I work on the energy transition, and we've talked about that, decarbonization of generation and decarbonization of energy-induced consumption. But the other part is uh, I focused a lot previously on smart grid technology, which has evolved into grid modernization. Yeah. One key part of that is resiliency, because climate change, even though we're trying to mitigate it, it's here. It's here, yeah. And it's impacting utilities, more storms, more severe storms, more trees. More <laughs> trees. Trees is an issue, but that issue has been around for a long time. Maybe more too. trees coming down. Yeah, more Sorry. trees. Sorry, I just had like trauma of this tree that keeps falling on my house. Yeah, so trees are an issue. It's actually probably one of the biggest components of grid reliability yeah. uh, because most outages for end-use customers occur at the distribution level. Yeah. Just more hurricanes, more tornadoes, more flooding, more extreme cold, more extreme heat. All of those are impacting the grid. Yeah. And so resiliency is really part of what we call license to operate. You need to be addressing resiliency. You also need to address reliability. A big component of that is aging infrastructure, making sure that your equipment is performing reliably. But then you also have improving efficiency, addressing power quality issues. And the other big issue, which I relate to grid modernization, is just the security piece, both physical and cyber. But in underpinning both grid modernization as well as the energy transition is what we can do digitally. 
And you didn't yeah. ask this, but one of the benefits of being part of Hitachi is we come to the table in Hitachi Energy with the equipment, the systems, ability to service what we sell, et cetera. But Hitachi has an IT component right, to the company. Yeah. Hitachi Ventera is what it's mm -hmm. called, plus another operation, which is called Global Logic, which was a recent acquisition, mm -hmm. which gives us tremendous IT capability to complement our, our yeah, operational yeah. technology. So this thing of IT, OT. Oh. Definition question. OT, yeah. operational technology. And IT is information. Informational technology. Yep. We just got a huge booster shot. Yeah. We joined Hitachi because of their IT capabilities really to address this concept of digitalization. Yeah. 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 So the high level stats of Hitachi Energy are mind boggling. When I was looking online, I started seeing these numbers that were insane. So to say that you have some involvement in the power industry is an understatement. What are the high level stats of Hitachi Energy? How much of the global power grids do you have an impact on or your technologies are involved in? So Hitachi Energy is known as being a major supplier or the major supplier to the utility market, primarily transmission and distribution. But there's a few areas that we really dominate the market, in my opinion. One is we're the leading global provider of HVDC technology and power quality solutions. So that's really part of our equipment side of our business. Also, we're the number one global supplier of transformers. So these range from power transformers to distribution transformers transformers to attraction transformers, for example, for rail applications, but globally, we're the largest supplier of transformers. So the equipment piece of our business is very significant. But that said, we also have IT and software solutions. 50% of the top 250 global utilities use our software. Half right? of the 250 largest global utilities are using our software. We talk about these days IoT, we talk about digitalization, and we have $4 trillion of assets that we're managing and optimizing with our software solutions from our grid automation business. So we're not only the leading equipment provider, the apparatus, the equipment, the breakers, the transformers, but we're also very much focused on digitalization, IT solutions, and optimizing and managing the grid. Wow. We're going to dig into some of this stuff later, but basically that means when the power grid is running every single day and we're all flipping our lights on whenever we want to do that, your technology is sitting out there making sure that when that happens, these lights come on. We can do podcasts. Sure. I'd like to say that we're responsible for keeping the lights on, but we provide the infrastructure and we provide the software that enables your yeah. local utility provider to make sure that your lights... Like, is that the primary customer target is the utility company or do you do like 
you'd mentioned rail. Are most of these kind of quasi-governmental agencies that you're working with, or do you have private customers as well? No, I think there's two parts to, to our business. One is we do serve the utilities, and to a lesser extent, maybe generation, but generation has to connect to the grid. So certainly the utilities are a major part of our customer base. But the other part of our customer base is what I would call energy intensive market verticals, Mm. oil and gas, mining, pharmaceuticals, data centers. These are all energy intensive market verticals. And because of the amount of energy that they consume, they need more infrastructure to be able to deliver and then to manage that on their side of the meter. So that's the other key part of our business. We do provide solutions for electrification of rail and transportation, and then companies that are heavy consumers of electricity, and then also the utilities that are supplying it. I kind of want to talk about rail, but that's only because I'm curious. I'm going to go to... (laughs) (laughs) Rail in the U.S. is not terribly... Electrified. There's a lot of upside potential for yeah. electrifying rail in the U.S. Just yeah. Europe is much, much higher. Yeah. Being down in North Carolina, when we were thinking of moving to this region, one thing I saw was like, when are we going to get a light rail in this area? And I, now that I've lived here for a little while, I think the answer is we're not. <laughs> I know well, a little bit about that. You do? Well, yeah. ne- never yeah. say never. It, it keeps yeah. getting looked at. But, you know, what would make sense just at a high level? We're in the research triangle. So why don't you connect the three points yeah. of the research triangle with rail? Is this happening? Gary, I'm going to start another podcast looking for funding. <laughs> yes, funding, funding, funding would be a good thing. And then the other thing is it's got to connect to the airport. Yeah. If I could hop on a rail line here in Apex and get to the airport with mm-hmm. a light rail solution, even if I had to go into Raleigh and then go back out yeah. to the airport, wouldn't uh, make a difference? Yeah. You know, it would be handy. Just yeah, I think a lot of people would would select that option of getting yeah. to the airport rather than fighting the traffic, particularly when you're being picked up. But the <clears> airport <throat> makes all of its money from the parking lot, so that there's the that's the rub. Lies the power dynamic. Ah. that we're coming up against. Mm. <laughs> they do make money, I'm assuming, from their parking lots and the parking garages. Yeah. They don't, yeah they're not incentivized to bring... We need to call the Seattle people. They seem to... They put a light rail right into the parking lot there. <laughs> you can walk... You could take the light rail and walk by all the parked vehicles. And I, that would be... I really... I, we don't have to go down the rail no, rabbit hole, but I do think like electric rail in some of these places, especially just seeing people moving all over the country. There's certain hot spots that are blowing up. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Every time that we talk, the concept of HVDC comes up. And I thought what would be interesting is to go back to just some of the big headlines that we've seen come out in Wall Street Journal and New York Times. is The dream of renewables is being blocked by these lengthy interconnection queues. So first, I know we're going to have to take a huge step back, but what is an interconnection queue and why is this blocking our renewable dreams from coming true? So the interconnection queue is basically a a queue of companies that want to connect generation resources or assets to the transmission grid. 
Typically, there needs to be a study to determine if there's sufficient capacity and what would be the impact of connecting that generation to the grid to determine whether or not the grid at that location can accommodate that resource. A study needs to be done, so these get queued up as part of the approval process. So that's what the, that's what the interconnection queue is. And it's backed up. It's worse in some areas than others. It depends upon how many generation resources want to connect to the grid within a particular area. Typically, if it's connecting where there's a, an independent system operator or an RTO, regional transmission operator, they may have limited resources in terms of processing and evaluating these interconnection requests in order to move forward and connect them into the grid. And so then that's how it's been done for for quite a while, at least. I know that the transmission operators and those were kind of a new thing that came about. Was that post deregulation or yeah, was that I happening think, I before? I think it was part of, I guess going back, I think it was part of deregulation where yeah. now instead of having vertically integrated utilities, you had a deregulated infrastructure where you had generation owners and then you have transmission and distribution wires companies mm-hmm. and they own those assets. And then you have an independent grid operator, an independent system operator responsible for the dispatch of generation, having a market so that you have the most economic dispatch. And then, of course, you have to manage the transmission grid because that's where your constraints come from. There's a term, terminology that's used. It's called security constrained unit commitment. Security and the constraint. And the security in this case is security of the transmission grid, security of grid operation. And you want to make sure that when you operate the grid that you have the ability to withstand single or even potentially double contingencies and still be able to maintain the integrity and the operation of the grid. Because if you lose any one of those pieces, you still need to be able to maintain the integrity and continue to deliver power. Yeah, that is a, that's a hard problem. That in my life of being in startups or talking sometimes to financiers who know nothing about the power grid is this one concept that all of these things have to be in perfect balance or very close to perfect balance all the time, every millisecond of every day. And that creates a really interesting economic or market dynamic that doesn't really exist when you can throw something in a warehouse or you can, like most other markets, if you make something and nobody buys it, it ends up filling up a storage unit somewhere and and shut down the business and no big deal, but in power, you don't even get to make anything for the power grid until... It is known that when you push this power onto the grid, that nothing bad is going to happen. So the cue is to get connected, to have access to the grid. What I mentioned in terms of security and the security constraints, that's the operational decisions that are made to dispatch generation. And you're correct when you said generation and the resources always has to match the load. Right. Yeah. And so what we may see, it's probably not true today because today generation follows load, Mm -hmm. but there may be a time, particularly when we use more and more non-dispatchable generation resources, think wind and solar. solar. Uh, We may start thinking about dispatching load to match a non-dispatchable generation profile. What does that look like? That means in California, you may try and shift charging of EVs to 2 p.m. in the afternoon when you have a surplus of solar PV that might otherwise be curtailed. The only thing that 
injects itself into that equation is storage. And there you can decouple when you generate or how much you generate versus load because now you're storing energy. Yeah. But we don't have that much storage. Yeah. Most of the storage we do have in this country today is pumped hydro. That's uh, right. It's yeah. over 90% of the storage is pumped hydro, yeah. but there's a lot of interest and investment in battery energy storage. And the reason is because yeah. it gives you that flexibility it provides stabilization of variable resources, again, like wind and solar. so funny how like everything we talk about, whether it's transmission or it's storage or it's demand response, which you mentioned in, in different words, which is we have the people who are using the power, changing how they use the power to, to match everything. It all comes back to that one thing. Everything has to be in balance. Right. We're all just trying to balance it. And everybody has to work together. The way we met was around this concept of a large industrial campus or microgrid where you could do all of this on site. Conceptually, that is incredible. You could run a data center or something that has this economic value in the economy that has nothing to do with electricity. It's computing storage or maybe it's industrial warehouses. And then you can power all of that on site. But then when I start getting into the technical weeds, 100% uptime is really hard to achieve. 100% versus 99.9999 is a huge difference in terms of how much more power do we need to build in order to get that last little bit of reliability. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, with zero carbon emissions, no diesel backup, anything, given the technology we have today, can you run a small power grid? Sure, it's all possible and feasible. It's how much would it cost? Your comments, there's a number of things that you touched on. So you're correct. The grid actually did start as a microgrid in today's terminology. And then we saw the expansion of multiple microgrids. If a microgrid only has a sole source of generation, then reliability becomes a concern because if that generator goes, the whole grid associated with that microgrid basically is down. In theory, two microgrids tied themselves together. And so now you had two microgrids with a link. In the case, the generation at one failed, they could rely on the generation of the other. And that was the start of what is today's grid. Yeah, And so it really addresses the reliability piece because as you point out, we have to match generation to load. You can address that reliability through the grid that we have today, the interconnected grid. The other way you can protect yourself is with storage. But storage has a cost associated right. with it, particularly if, if you have a diesel generator and you need a part and you can't get the part for two weeks. That's really inconvenient if you want to watch you know, the football game on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> or even more important, if you have a mission critical business, what do you put on site in terms of backup storage? You mentioned data centers. The data centers typically have backup on-site power to serve all critical loads. They take their main power from the grid, but they typically have backup on-site resources that can actually maintain the data center for days, if not weeks. But in addition to that, the real critical data centers have a backup for the backup. (laughs) So dual redundancy. And then they also may rely on not just one feed from the utility, but they may take a second circuit and a second feed Mm -hmm. so they have redundant feeds. All 
pursuing a level of reliability, whether that's six nines or whatever the case may be that they determine they need for their facility. But redundant feeds cost extra money. Putting in a backup on-site system and maintaining that system, maintaining the fuel, and inputting a backup to that all have expenses, which a data center justifies by need for reliability. And so can you build a site that has on-site power generation? Sure, but you need to make sure that you have some diversity of generation. You need to make sure that some of that generation is dispatchable, that it's not weather and time dependent if you're trying to achieve those high nines. Where we first met each other, that particular site is looking at different types of resources, but it also has access to the grid, so it can use a grid connection as backup. And there's always the possibility of putting in storage to complement the renewable generation that's on site. And ultimately, all of those combined can achieve the six nines of reliability that a large data center would require with mission critical load. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting how it it seems that the cloud computing industry, uh, I don't know if it was from the beginning, but at least the first time I ever saw a contract to buy cloud computing services, it's always based on reliability. It's based on how often do you need this on? Can you lose one hour a year? Can you lose 10 hours a year? Can you lose 20 hours a year? And you have a rate sheet based on how often you want this thing to stay on. It doesn't seem like in the power industry we have that, but I could be wrong. Do any utilities in the country offer that type of reliability rate sheet? Because I don't have it in my house, of course. They just say, hey, we'll keep the lights on as often as we can. <laughs> so I haven't been as involved in the rate sheet and yeah. you know how utilities price reliability. Right. Yeah. But if you have a an industrial company that has a need for high reliability, yeah. it depends where the reliability infrastructure, yeah. that on-site generation or that backup storage, which side of the meter is it on? So if it's on the customer yeah. side of the meter, the company or the industry is making the investment to ensure that they're taking, they're making the economic investment on right. their side of the meter to be able to address their needs and requirements. And it's not just data centers. You know, pharmaceutical, <clears throat> where you have processes where if you interrupt that process or have a blip oh, in yeah. your power, yeah. you have to scrap the whole production run, clean out all your machines and start all over again. Really costly. Chip manufacturing, same thing. Yeah. So reliability <clears throat> has a cost if you don't have it, yep. which means companies are willing to invest in infrastructure on their side of the meter or pay the utility to put infrastructure on the utility side of the meter, that redundant power feed, for example. Basically, they have a utility microgrid with local power, whether it's storage or something that can feed that facility in the event that the main supply through the grid is lost through an outage or some problem. So it That price sheet or that rate depends who's doing the investing to provide the level of reliability. I always have this problem. I blame ever studying physics in my life for this problem, but I always have to follow it out to like the nth degree of what will happen if we keep moving. If this option comes readily available to everyone to basically where 10 years ago we would have thought, hey, I could put a battery in and this will be my backup power in case the grid goes out. It seems that we may end up gravitating towards this world where you have this private utility or this way of supplying electricity to yourself. And then there's this big grid, which 
man, I mean, even this project that we've been, that we've talked about or that we met on was we look at the grid as a backup. Like we don't look at that as the primary source of electricity. We're thinking, okay, we can get this on-site generation and then the grid ends up being that last little bit of reliability. What's your view on that? Do you think, I know you work with a lot of these utilities, so I'm sure that they don't see it that way. The utility has a little bit different lens and look at it from this perspective. Let's suppose that you have a site where on the customer side of the meter, you have generation resources. And let's assume just for discussion that those are renewable, so they're variable. Uh, You have some storage, but there could be a scenario where you're going to need to pull power from the grid. And so you have your critical loads and maybe it's five megawatts of load. So if you're going to use the grid as backup, that means you need to have a grid connection that can support five megawatts of load. And then the utility that owns the grid that's serving your facility has to be able to deliver, has to have the capacity to be able to deliver five megawatts, whether whether you use it or not. (laughs) And so if you're going to require that capacity in the grid as as your backup, Mm -hmm. then the argument is from the utility point of view, you should pay for that. Yeah. Whether you use it or not, because they're contractually obligated per your agreement to deliver that five megawatts should your on-site generation not be able to perform. Yeah. And so that's the problem because people, a lot of customers, residential customers who have solar PV, they don't necessarily have batteries in their garage. But if they have just a net metering, Mm -hmm. they're actually using the, if they push their surplus power to the grid, mm-hmm. and then when they don't have solar, they pull power from the grid, they're using the grid as a battery. And should they pay for that service? Yeah, we dove into that on our community solar talk that we did, which is like what when you're net metering, yeah, it goes back to that same premise. If everything has to equal each other at all times, that concept of you're going to need the same size grid to back up for 10 hours a year as you do to use it for 5,000 hours a year. It just has to sit there. And if it just has to sit there and you only use it for 10 hours a year, you might as well use it for 5,000 hours a year because it's there. It's the argument. If the cost of the electricity that you're purchasing from the grid is cheaper than what you can pay for self-generation, you got to take into account your investment costs or your financial costs as well as your operating costs when you make that decision. Yeah. And those are some of the dynamics. Yeah. So Um, what do you think is going to happen to net metering then? I think... 10 years from now. I think 10 years from now, I think... In a perfect world, you'll see in-use customers, not only industrial customers, but residential customers, see a time-varying rate. Smart meters can do that. Mm -hmm. So if you consume or produce more energy during peak demand periods where Mm -hmm. generation costs are higher, the cost to supply is higher during those time periods. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll see people starting to make economic decisions regarding when they consume, when they produce, whether or not they invest in storage based on leveraging whatever resources they may have decided to put on their side of the meter. The bigger challenge becomes how do you do that from an economic justice point of view? Because 
people who have the resources to invest in those type of technologies tend to be more affluent and you need to make sure that there's some equity in terms of who's benefiting and yeah. who can afford to make adjustments. But I think price transparency for all customers, the technology is in place today with smart meters. Yeah, absolutely. And if you consume during peak demand, you should pay for that. The last thing the utility wants to see is a customer providing power to the grid at two o'clock in the afternoon when they already have more power than they need mm-hmm. and then pulling power from the grid at the same value because yeah. it's net metering. From the utility point of view, that doesn't make economic sense. Yeah. Flo and I, we talked about community solar and we said, if you want to see what happens when anybody can produce renewable power at any time, variable power at any time and dump it into the grid and consume from the grid whenever they want. And there's really no change in price between doing that. Just look at California. I want to say even 10 years ago or maybe longer, they would talk about the duck curve concept that that it's not quite 10 years old, but it's probably getting there. Yeah, it was definitely being talked about. If we keep letting people make solar power in the middle of the day and then at night when the sun goes down, you have to have all this backup power that just sits there all day long that has to then ramp up as the sun is going down right at the end of the day. And I I just saw a chart of that. It's getting worse that ramp is really steep at the end of the day. Am I oversimplifying it to say that basically is because of net metering? Yeah, I think that's a little bit of a simplification. I think there's a number of dynamics. So one dynamic is power is expensive in California. Mm -hmm. So there's incentives for people to want to put rooftop solar on their homes because there's a cheaper, there's a payback, there's a payback. So what's happening? There's a couple of things. So if you look at it from the perspective of Cal ISO, which actually put out this duck curve, what they see as the load for the state is actual load minus the solar. And so their challenge is peak demand with that scenario occurs in the evening. And of course, solar doesn't contribute to meeting that peak demand. And so during the day, the dispatchable generation resources get more and more constrained because all the solar PV is coming onto the grid. And then when the solar tapers off in the evening and you see this evening ramp, which I last I looked was 13 gigawatts. It just goes away. No. And then has to come on. The, the combination away. of the yeah. dropping off of the solar and the increase in demand, mm-hmm. you're seeing a net change, oh, of, net 13, change of, 13. of 13 gigawatts of demand in the evening, which is pretty significant. To put yeah. it in context, that's 13 large nuclear power plants. That just have to show up. That just have to show up. <laughs> which, by the way, nuclear power plants are normally based slow. They don't yeah, ramp they don't up ramp and down well. very well. Yeah. And so those may not even be running because yeah. if they can't produce in the afternoon when all the solar PV yeah. is, is coming onto the grid, they may not be available for that evening ramp. And so that's the dynamic is yeah. how do you make sure you have availability of dispatchable generation that's not time and weather dependent yeah. to meet a a peak demand that's occurring every evening, particularly given the dynamics associated with bringing more solar PV onto the grid. And going back, not to beat this in too hard, but with net metering, there's no incentive for a homeowner to install a battery to smooth that out. 
basically they have a battery already. Which is it's called, it's called yeah. the grid. It's kind of probably oversimplifying again, but there's probably quite a few natural gas plants out there to do that ramp at the end of the night, I'm assuming. Capacity, dispatchable capacity becomes an issue. And certainly there's been a major investment in natural gas because natural gas is it's not carbon free, but it is cleaner than coal coal. and it is dispatchable and it can ramp. ramp So so it's used for peaking power. Yeah. But natural gas is more expensive in terms of investment and operation than wind or solar. From an economic point of view, you might favor wind and solar carbon-free, lower levelized cost of energy, but people don't turn off all their appliances and their lights at 6 p.m. when the sun goes down. And so addressing that evening peak requires some type of dispatchable generation. Yeah. Did you know this, Flo? Do you know about this? I don't know if many people really know because you'll see these, whether it's marketing or whether it's some LinkedIn post or whether it's something at some news article that says California made all of its power from solar power at noon on July, on July, you know, it, or at noon of this day, it had hundred percent solar power. And I think we lose sight of the fact that there's all of this fossil fuel generation, although cleaner than coal, that just has to sit there until the sun goes down and then, all the, all sort of fossil fuel generation has to come on to fill that it's gap. Not, not running. It's not running during the day when the solar power is on, but it has to be financed. It has to be underwritten. Right. Has to be built. Has to be interconnected. The fuel has to be made and bought and brought. And so there's this whole supply chain and everything. And I think one of our reasons for starting this podcast was I think there's just a lot of things in my normal life when I'm talking to my friends that you don't even know that this is happening. You're seeing the high fives and all of the things about how we had a hundred percent solar or this company is a hundred percent renewable. And then I just start looking at like the time component. I'm like, not right now. Cause it's 7 PM. <laughs> and even <laughs> when you go to a hundred percent renewable, you know, what's working in the background. Wait, say that again. You go to 100%. 100% renewable generation, you know what's working in the background. What? You have to have a battery. You have to have something that can maintain voltage and frequency. And you have to have something that can steady or absorb the variation. Even if you're operating at 100%, there is some variability in wind and solar. Cloud. Yeah. A wind speed. <laughs> Cloud go, going over. A single solar panel can lose, what, 80 or 90% of its output in a couple of seconds when a cloud goes over, yeah, yeah. which isn't a problem if it's only one solar panel. And then you have a million other ones mm-hmm. that are not necessarily impacted by that same cloud. The grid forming device, when you're at 100% renewable, typically a microgrid or an island type of system, normally there's a battery in the background, which is the grid forming device and it's maintaining the voltage and the frequency and it can provide capacity firming services as well. So one thing that I think about listening to y'all's conversation about the grid as a battery versus solar farms or having your own solar panels on your house, there's every state is different. And I know, I think I trust the people in California that they actually care about using the renewable energy and that they're actually doing that. Yeah. But what kind of makes me uncomfortable about feeling good investing in solar for my house and being connected to the grid and the whole net metering thing is, are they actually using it? 
Like, I'm not convinced that they're actually going to use it here in North Carolina. Use the renewable power, the solar that you're... Yeah, it has to be put somewhere, but it may not be going into a storage I would like to know that it's being used and then just rely on the grid for backup instead of the net metering thing where it's all connected in the same. And I worry that it's for not, or it's for lip service. I don't know. Yeah. If you're producing more solar in the middle of the day than your house needs. Well, it's not even going to my house. It's going into, supposedly it's going going into into the grid, grid. but they have to do something with it. And this is community solar you're talking about, or you're talking about panels on top of your roof. I'm talking about panels on top of my roof, but it could also be net metering also works for solar farms and, So if you have panels on top of your roof and the sun is shining, there's one of three scenarios. So one scenario is you have more power than your home is consuming and you just push power to the grid. That power will be used because the power that's on the grid has whatever is supplied to the grid has to match and balance whatever is being consumed. So that's scenario one. Now that you've told me that, I trust you. I need someone in this industry. I need to hear it from someone personally. So the second scenario would be solar panels are producing electricity. You are not exporting to the grid for whatever reason. It's going into batteries that are sitting in your garage. So you're storing what you're not consuming so that when the sun is not shining, you can use that energy and you can, in the evening, for example, you can pull power from your batteries. So you have to oversize your solar. Then you have to size your batteries appropriately. And under that scenario, you can operate independently from the grid. Mm -hmm. If you want to have grid backup, you can, but then you'd have to have a throw over switch and basically then decide, okay, I'm going to pull power now from the grid. The other scenario is if you are producing and your battery is charged and you don't have load, then you just have to curtail, which means you're not taking advantage of the investment. Yeah, Yeah, turn it off. You're not taking Mm -hmm. advantage of the investment you have in your solar panels. So that's the other scenario, which if you want to extrapolate that to the grid at large, it's the same thing you see when you have a lot of renewable generation. The renewable generation has to be consumed locally as one option, mm-hmm. assuming it's connected to the grid, transmission or otherwise. It's basically the timing issue, but yeah. you have to move the power. Mm-hmm. If you can't consume it, you can't move it. Next option is you can store it, assuming you have a place to store it. That's local or yeah. now you're back to moving it if you have to move it someplace to store it. Or the last is you have to curtail it, which is economically just not a good solution. And I heard the term, it's actually a a company up in Canada, and they're talking about hydro generation, again, carbon free, but their hydro generation was run a river. And if they didn't have a way to consume the electricity that they were generating from hydro facilities based on run of river, they used the term spilled kilowatt hours like spilt milk yeah it's lost forever you're not getting it back and it doesn't help you out from from an economic cost recovery on your investment yeah yeah it's put in that spillway and it just goes past the river yeah yeah Yeah. the same thing when you curtail solar pv or the same thing if you're not using your wind generators so your options with electricity is to use it 
move it, throw or it, stop, <laughs> or shut it off, or spill it. Sounds like spill it is the way to. Th- so yeah. I know this is one of the things that you want to talk about yeah. is why transmission, why the need yeah. for transmission. Yeah. When we look at that, we are a strong advocate, obviously because we sell equipment that goes into transmission solutions. A lot of the renewable generation, and I'm talking utility scale mm-hmm. generation, is not typically located at or near a load center. Take California and North Dakota. Wind is really strong in North Dakota, but there's limited population. There's really not a grid. That power has no place to go. It's not going to be consumed. I don't think there's much storage up there, if any, and there's no transmission. So the first component of needing transmission for renewable generation is just to be able to get access to the grid. If you're talking about offshore wind, there's no grid off the East Coast, out in the ocean. You've got to bring it back on shore. And so you need that transmission investment to be able to access the grid. The second concern is in terms of need for transmission investment is the grid is more or less optimized based on the generation resources we have today and the locations of the load. Now you start retiring coal plants and even some nuclear plants are being retired, which by the way, are carbon free. Mm -hmm. But when you see those retirements and then you build new renewable generation based on wind in Utah or wind in the Dakotas or solar in the desert in the Southwest, you're changing the location of your generation resources, which changes your level of optimization of your grid. And you may get congestion. You may not have the adequate transmission you need to operate that security constrained unit commitment that I mentioned previously is a concern. And then the third concern is this timing issue. How do you match renewable generation with load? How do you match solar, which peaks at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, with demand, take California, that peaks at 7 p.m. at night? Now, think about the scenario where you take advantage of all that wind in North Dakota. Can you move power from North Dakota to California to meet the evening peak? Timing-wise, they align, but you don't have transmission. Right. It just so happens that North Dakota is on the eastern interconnect side of the seam between the eastern and western interconnect. And I don't know if if the audience is familiar with the eastern and western interconnect, but the U.S. grid is divided into actually three parts. So there's the eastern interconnect, there's the western interconnect, and there's what's called a seam between the two of them. And then there's Texas, which operates its own grid. Mm -hmm. All use 60 hertz as the frequency, but they're not synchronized. So that means you cannot directly move power between, for example, the eastern interconnect and the western interconnect. And the amount of power that you can transfer between the Eastern Interconnect and the Western Interconnect using HVDC, the total capacity of those ties is 1.3 gigawatts. Jeez. Which, so, going back to the duck curve that has to spin up every day, and that's like 10% of that. It's an order of magnitude lower than the amount of additional generation needed to meet the duck curve ramp. In California, yeah. So to put that into context, it's basically nothing. Yeah. So could transmission help solve that? Sure. If you could build transmission so you can move power from North Dakota to California, wind in North Dakota starts to ramp up in the evening. Yeah. And with the time difference, you can align that with the... curve issue. Well, it helps. Yeah. It helps. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if you're operating the grid and you're constrained by that 
security constraint unit commitment and you have a reliability issue, mm -hmm. that is what typically has driven new capacity and transmission. Right. Transmission, yeah. But California is also looking at, we want to decarbonize. In order to do that, we're going to need transmission capacity. And specifically, they look at three different things. They look at one, more power from offshore wind, which will come in, I think, on the, obviously the west side of the state, but a little bit to the north. They're looking at bringing in wind from Utah, Wyoming, and that area. And then they're also looking at bringing in power, both wind and solar, from the southwest coming in through Arizona, Arizona New Mexico, Mexico. And, yep. and that direction. So they're looking at transmission capacity, not only for reliability, but also to meet their future needs to decarbonize the California grid. Yeah. And so a lot of the transmission planning that's done today, though, is focused on reliability constraints in MISO or reliability constraints in PJM, reliability constraints in New York or ISO New England. What gets missed in that equation is what about the need for transmission that goes from the Eastern interconnect to the Western interconnect right. yeah. to increase the value of renewable generation. These are some of the things yeah. that are behind the big push for transmission. Yeah. EEI is supporting that. That's uh, EEI. Yeah, it, Edison Electric Institute. It's basically an industry organization for utilities. Yeah. The ACOR did their, what is it, American Council for or of Renewable Energy, I think. But ACOR did a macro report where they looked at the need for transmission. NREL did a report called the SEAMS report, which Sorry. is looking at the value of transmission, in particular crossing the seam between the eastern and western interconnect. And I think their conclusion was for every dollar you invest in transmission, you get $2.50 payback and further benefit from renewable generation. So everybody, I think, is on board recognizing there's a need for transmission, but there's, a, there's a, some issues that need to be addressed. The planning, we need a national plan, not just a regional plan. Yeah. We need to figure out how to do siting, permitting, yeah. uh, environmental approvals, that process, the policy piece of it. And then we also need to address cost allocation, who benefits, who pays, and yeah. there needs to be alignment in terms of who is benefiting. One of the challenges with HVDC lines is they do have an impact for stakeholders between the two endpoints, but HVDC lines are normally endpoint to endpoint. So people who are selling power that the line moves and the people who are buying the power presumably at a lower rate than what they can buy locally they benefit but the people in the middle are they benefiting and if they don't yeah. think they're benefiting then it becomes an issue that yeah it becomes an issue that needs to be addressed yeah so that's where storytelling and value basically sales comes in there's so many benefits to making the grid more reliable and decarbonizing the grid that are hard to, sometimes hard to quantify, but also sometimes easy to quantify. Yeah. And are we, are people telling those stories? Uh, yeah. To, to make those moves happen easier to bring yeah. people together. The thing that's weird about energy in general, we've seen it forever all the way from ready kilowatt or any of those old ways that people used to market electricity in the early days of electricity is just like, all of the analysis that you can possibly do, and there's plenty of it to explain why this is good. The reason that it doesn't happen can be as simple as somebody being afraid in the middle of that, like one easement that you needed. And somebody's like, ah, oh, that sounds scary. 
or not even scary, just like, oh, that sounds scary economically for my land. And it's not an analysis, like no amount of analysis or explaining can get some people over the line. It's, it's just emotional. Flo, you brought up an interesting point is what are the dynamics of the grid right now? And we talk about the energy transition. And so what exactly is the energy transition? In my mind, there's two components. So one component is decarbonize power generation. And so I think the current administration has said we want to decarbonize power generation by 2035. I think that's the target date. I think California is saying they want to decarbonize by 2040. So maybe some of these goals are aspirational, but presumably there's an initiative because of the desire to mitigate climate change that we want to decarbonize power generation. By the way, power generation is the second largest source of carbon emissions in the U.S., so the question is, where are we today? Mm-hmm. What's our level of decarbonization of generation today? And the answer is we're about 40% carbon-free with our generation today. So 20% of the total or half of the carbon-free generation is nuclear power in rough numbers. And the other half is a combination of hydro, wind, and solar. There's also some biogas and tidal and other sources, but the main components are hydro, wind, and solar. So then you have the other 60%, which is not carbon-free, and presumably that's either going to be cleaned through carbon capture or it's going to be replaced. So 60% of our generation in the country today, between now and 2035, needs to be replaced or needs to be implemented with carbon capture to to clean it up, which just for, just picture, think about the challenge of doing that. We're talking 12 years if it's 2035 yeah. to replace or clean yeah. 60% of this country's power generation. So that's the magnitude of, of what we're talking about yeah. on the power gener the power generation side. That's just replacing what's there, but then there's also the question. I'll of like, get, I'm okay. going to get to that in a second. That's a good point. So yeah. there's a tailwind behind renewable generation in terms of wind and solar because wind and solar have the lowest levelized cost of energy of any generation investment alternative yeah. today. So I view that as a tailwind. The challenge is... It's not dispatchable. It's time and weather dependent. And right now, our load is not aligned to exactly match renewable generation, particularly when you have a week of rain or an extended calm period. So having carbon-free dispatchable generation is going to be a key challenge to achieve that decarbonization of power generation. So people are looking at hydrogen, which is really basically a storage mechanism if we're looking at using electrolyzers to produce carbon-free hydrogen, which in turn is then used for dispatchable generation. It's really just using hydrogen as a complementary energy path in in storage. But we need to find a way to have dispatchable 
carbon-free generation. People also are looking at modular nuclear as another yeah. potential. But we'll, let's park that for a second. Now let's look on the consumption side. So electricity today is about 20% of energy in-use consumption. And what's forecasted, Europe is saying electricity consumption is going to double between now and 2050. In the U.S., the last analysis I saw was done by NREL, and they were forecasting at this particular study, which is, I think, a few years old, uh, 80% increase in electricity consumption between now and, or between 2018 and 2050. Wow. And so where is that coming from? It's 29% increase, just organic increase, population, maybe more data centers. Yeah. Just electric vehicles, maybe no, not, not even those. Let's, not, yeah. let's exclude electrification wow. for the moment. Just population, huh. more uses of electricity aside from electrification. Yeah. But that growth, 29%. Over 30 years is less than one. It's yeah, slightly less sure. than one percent, which is pretty pretty low growth. Maybe crypto mining is going to push that up a little bit. <laughs> but certainly, some of the data analytics, data management is driving increased yeah. demand. But you also have offsets with energy efficiency. There's some population growth, et cetera. So that's growth, but not counting electrification. Then electrification is going to drive increased consumption by 40%. So if you take one point, roughly 1.3 times 1.4, that's where you get the 80% increase. The bulk of that increase is transportation under electrification. Yeah. There's buildings, there's industrial, but the bulk of it is really trans transportation, which by the way, transportation is the number one source of carbon emissions in the US. So if you're gonna do anything to reduce carbon emissions, the two elephants in the room are power generation, which is slightly less than 30%, and I think transportation, which is right around 30%. So between the two, you're about 60% of our carbon emissions are related to those two components. Now, what's interesting with electrification, and I said it's going to approximately double between now and 2050, recognize that's doubling consumption. Okay, mm -hmm. and so consumption and demand or peak demand are not the same thing. And so that means if we can manage the charging, we can utilize some of the excess capacity that exists in the grid today during lower peak demand periods, increase the utilization factors of our generation and our T&D infrastructure, and maybe not have to double the capacity of the grid, even though the consumption is doubling. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It comes down to like where and when, like being able to take what we make and then change right. where it is and when it's being used. And, and so we were talking yeah. a little bit about yeah. California with solar PV in the afternoon and possibly being curtailed because there's too much of it. Mm -hmm. And in that evening peak that occurs in California in the evening. So what if you could make sure that there was no electrification or vehicle charging at 8 p.m. Yeah. and instead you try to do as much vehicle charging at 2 in the afternoon yeah. so that you're managing the capacity that you have. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's important when you look at the energy transition to look at both of those. How do we decarbonize generation and then how do we electrify in-use energy consumption to reduce carbon? There's going to be things that are difficult to electrify though. Yeah. Long haul 
heavy crates uh-huh. on yeah. trucks is going to be mm-hmm. difficult to electrify. Yeah. You end up carrying more batteries than you do cargo. So from a weight yeah. perspective, and I'm exaggerating to make a point, but yeah. that that's something that because of the long distances traveled and the weight involved and to recharge those can take a fair amount of time. Yeah. So it's it may not that may not be the that's certainly not the low hanging fruit. Yeah. But Local delivery trucks, distribution trucks, yeah. those, they don't go more than maybe 150 miles in a day. So you yeah. can size the batteries. You have dwell time at night to do the charging. So yeah. that makes sense to electrify as quickly as possible. I yeah. can imagine like an app on your phone that notifies you when it's a more affordable time to charge your car. Like that 2, technology yeah. exists today. Yeah. 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 Go charge your car right now at 2 p.m. because the grid has more power than it needs. The yeah. generation isn't matching the load. But, but yeah. again, that technology exists today. You can have an app on your phone that can control when you charge your car and turn your car charger on and off remotely. Yeah. So the only piece that you quote are missing is knowing the time of use rate for electricity and in, that's pretty predictable as yeah. to what rates are going that's to be on a daily basis. So yeah. you know what the hourly cost of electricity is going to be, and you can determine or schedule through an app when you charge your car. That's, wouldn't it be nice? The technology is here today to do that. That's what's so mind-boggling about it is all of this technology we're talking about. It's not like we're sitting here saying, can you imagine some m- miracle in the future where... If we were talking about healthcare, we'd be talking about, oh, a cure for cancers. The cure for all of these things we just talked about is already here. Like the storage is here. I know there's costs and all of that. So that's where I want to go next is the pesky part of this equation is people in politics. Okay. If we want to decarbonize by 2035 and transmission is an important part of that moving power to where it needs to go using the renewable energy making it where it should be made, North Dakota, and moving it to where it needs to be used. What's the average time it takes to lay a transmission line from a place like North Dakota to, say, California? Oh, I'd say average time to get a transmission (laughs) line from start to finish is probably 10 years, give or take. Maybe longer, maybe less, but to go through that entire process. Because first you need to define the economic value. So economic value historically has been the need for the transmission to address a reliability constraint on the grid. But now we're supplementing that with the economic benefit of being able to move power from point A to point B, whether it's renewable or whatever the case may be, there's economic value in that. Yeah. And you really open up a market in a way, right? Like on both, I've only briefly interacted with the Empire Connector. Did you guys work in the Empire Connector or was it the Champlain Hudson? Well, we are working now on the Champlain Hudson Connector. That was something that I believe was started last year. So we're working on that project. And what about, so you said 10 years, is that 10 years from the start of proposing that as a project to the end of it being built? Or is 10 years from the start of once it gets approved once, no, yeah. the actual construction time doesn't take ten years. Right. The, the, but the permitting and the it actually takes longer. That takes the, longer than the actual time. That's to, what I figured. To, to construct. What is that process like? If we're sitting here today and we decided, hey, that that transmission line from North Dakota to California—that's a really good idea. We should go and do that. 
tomorrow. Yeah. What would you do tomorrow? What would you wake up and do tomorrow? I think the first thing you need to look at is the economic viability at a high level. What value is this line going to provide? Again, as I mentioned, historically, it was addressing a reliability constraint. Today, it could be addressing market congestion or being able to just enable higher utilization of renewable generation connecting to the grid. There needs to be that economic drive, driver that just makes the project viable. Yep. The next part of that is looking at the routing, looking at the land and access to the land and securing land rights, because if you don't have the land, you're not going to be able to build it. What follows that is getting the permitting and addressing their environmental requirements, et cetera. And that's where you have multiple stakeholders. You have federal stakeholders, you have state stakeholders, you have local stakeholders, you have industry groups, conservation associations. You have an abundance of stakeholders. You have to navigate that process. And assuming you can do that, then there's also the financing. Is there a PPA? What's the cost recovery look like? How is it going to be? How are you going to recover the cost allocation? Who benefits, et cetera? There are those issues. So if you can get through all of those, then in theory, you can start constructing. Applying for permits. As long as, yeah. well, yeah. yeah, you need to apply and yeah. make sure you have the permits. Yeah. Because starting construction obviously represents a significant investment. Yeah. But even that process I just outlined costs tens of millions of dollars. Just to get to this. Just to get to the point where you want to start actually building. And the answer could be no during that process. So you and the answer, the answer could be no. Yeah. And sometimes the answer changes and then goes from <laughs> yes to no back to yes. So There's an example in New England of that, but yeah. it's in, it's a risky process. And that's, I think, the biggest issue that needs to be addressed is the risk. Yeah. How do you embark on a project like this, not knowing whether or not you're even going to be able to build the transmission line at the end? And all that money you invest up front, maybe, maybe the project may be killed at the last step. And so mm-hmm. there's a risk element and there's some in monies that have been included in IIJA, for example, or the BIL, to facilitate transmission, looking at maybe backstopping right away acquisition potentially. That was something that was passed in previous legislation, but needed to be reworked. I don't think that's yet been implemented. Maybe guaranteeing loans for transmission lines. I don't think the capital, though, is the issue. I think if you could address the risk, and if you have the financial value behind the line, the economic value, you can get the money, in my opinion. I think the real risk is that siting, permitting process, the policy, the levels of regulation is really where the challenges are. Is there an opportunity to use the rail way network or the interstate network yeah there's i think there's one line it's called the sioux line that's looking at rail right away using a cable and going underground along rail rights of way to possibly facilitate because at some point if there's strong economic value 
then even though you have to pay more to maybe take a longer route to follow rail and you have to go underground with cable, which might be a little bit more money, but if at the end it still pencils out, then the project is economically viable yeah. and you, it may be easier because it's out of sight. You're yeah. dealing with fewer landowners if you're dealing with maybe three or four rail lines, for example, yeah. and you're not impacting the ability of their property to perform for their in-use purpose. Yeah. You're just trying to move more power down existing rights away is another yeah. another avenue. Yeah, that's what has struck me for definitely the last decade. I think a big epiphany for me in the clean energy space was that so much of what we are going to use to generate electricity is technology. It's not fuel driven. It's not commodity fuel driven. It's not we're not extracting things in order to put it. So now being able to skip the extraction part. We can take some of that money that used to, because that's pretty high risk money to show up to a piece of land and hope that your geological models are going to produce oil for you. Somebody took that risk at one point, And it sounds like now that the technology costs of clean energy are coming down or have come down almost 99% since I got into this business, even a decade ago, or I guess now it's 13 years ago. It was like unreasonable to install a solar panel. You're crazy if you were going to do that. You needed all sorts of subsidies and programs. But now, I guess just finding that capital that will take the risk on transmission, because if you do get the line, as you said, it's almost like finding oil in North Dakota. If you could get a line from North Dakota and you could take the risks, the $10 million, $20 million planning risk to get a line from North Dakota to $50 million planning risk, $60 million. Do I hear 70? Do I hear 80? Anyway? So, sold to Gary. Yeah, I think that if you're willing to take that risk, it really would be the equivalent of finding or unlocking this value. But it does seem like a lot of these a lot of the risks that were taken in oil and gas hasn't sort of translated over into renewables as much. That maybe it seems maybe like, not as yeah. much, but I do think there's some analogies, as you pointed out. And what's interesting is, if I take as an example an HVDC line using cable technology, that technology is mature. We're continuing to right. ramp up the ratings of those lines now. I think we're well over one gigawatt and depending upon the technology with, I think this might be with overhead, overhead HVDC, we can go two, three gigawatts of, of power. I think it's Grid United and also Elite just announced a project and it's the North Plains Connector or Northern mm. Plains Connector. But anyway, it's to connect the Eastern and Western Interconnect and the Eastern Interconnect, two tie points, one with SP, one with MISO. And it's basically to be able to move power from North Dakota into the Western Interconnect. I think it's about 300 miles long, three gigawatt wow. rating, $2.5 billion estimated cost. So major project. Yeah. Two quick questions about transmission lines. We talked about this last time and I thought it, for some reason I thought it was interesting because I had no idea how big they were. And you explained they're not that wide. Okay, so we were talking about cables when I said oh, okay. they're not that wide. Mm -hmm. okay. And so through two cables, I don't know, 10 inches each in diameter, give or take, you can move over a gigawatt of power. 
So you can take like a nuclear power plant, the old school one. And then think about it. Move that through. (laughs) Yeah. So think about building a 400 mile extension cord for a nuclear power plant. And you need two cables this big. And for people who can't see, that's about two cables, maybe 10 inches in, in diameter. Yeah. Smaller than a dinner plate. Or maybe, (laughs) I used to have some samples in my office of HVDC cables, but they're not gigantic. They're they're less, definitely less than a foot in diameter, maybe even only half that. But it depends upon the technology that you're using for the insulation and type of of cable. And when you say it can move one gigawatt, over what period of time? Like how quickly? So a gigawatt is a rating. Okay. So it's like a rate of power movement. Okay. And then a gigawatt hour is the amount of energy that's actually moved in one hour when the rate of power flowing is one gigawatt. So gigawatt is a rate and gigawatt hour is a is an energy. That's why when you look at batteries Battery energy storage has two ratings. One is the rating of the power conversion system, which is the rate at which the battery can either be charged or discharged. And that might be a one megawatt battery, which is the power electronics. But then the amount of energy that could be stored, if it's a one hour battery, it would be one megawatt hour. If it's a four hour battery, the amount of energy that gets stored is four megawatt hours. Okay, cool. And so the rating of a transmission line, since you're not storing energy, you're not really consuming energy, it's a rate at which energy flows down down the power line. Can we, what would one gigawatt power? A gigawatt is the equivalent to the output of a nuclear power plant. So I don't know how many homes that would be, but it's a lot. Okay. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. In, yeah, I want to say like, Two hundred thousand. Yeah, I was going to say you could power a whole city probably with a one gigawatt nuclear power plant. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you. I just wanted to put that into. Yeah. Actually, how many people? Yeah. If it was, if you had two and a half people per home or something like that, that's probably a five hundred thousand person city. I don't have those numbers memorized, but they're readily available. Yeah. You can just you can easily find that on Chat GPT. Yeah. (laughs) They might host. They might script the whole podcast. But you could ask it all these questions. There's one interesting application because we were talking about what could help the grid operate. And you mentioned the Champlain-Hudson line, yeah. which is bringing hydropower down from Canada. So we did a project over in Europe. The line is now commissioned. It's an HVDC line. It goes, again, three or 400 miles. It operates at 1.4 gigawatts. And it connects Germany to Norway. And it's bidirectional. Germany has excess wind and excess solar. It doesn't have to worry about curtailing it. If it can't consume it, it can ship power to Norway. So Norway can then use that power, but in the process of using that power, they don't consume their hydro resources. So they can build up water behind their, mm. in their reservoirs or behind their dams because they're utilizing the power that's coming from Germany. And so they now have surplus water stored, which Germany can then tap into by reversing the flow in the line when they don't have wind and solar surplus. And so 
the basic concept is it's a huge 1.4 gigawatt water battery. Now yeah. you say, oh, that's over in Europe. <laughs> but in theory, we could do the same thing here in the U.S., but we would need a partner like Canada, which has tremendous hydro resources. And if you couple that with our wind in the center tier of the country, going from Texas to North Dakota, and the solar in the southern half, particularly the western southern half, you have the ability now to have some diversity in your carbon-free generation with hydro from Canada, wind and solar in the U.S., and by managing how much you build and how you operate, you now are getting to that point where you're moving closer and closer or enabling more carbon-free generation resources. Yeah. And so that's conceptual. There's policy issues. There's issues about moving power over a border. Who owns it? Who operates it? Who takes the risk for it? The planning, geopolitical risk, all of that comes into the mix. Yeah. But from a technical point of view, we could start building that line tomorrow. Yeah, that's amazing. It seems like, I read an article in The Economist that the picture on the front is somebody hugging the like the like the pylon, basically the like the high voltage electricity tower, and it was basically making the case like if you, we want to have a clean, one hundred percent clean grid, everybody better get used to seeing these really tall towers. And you're making the case that we don't need to see those really tall towers. Those HVDC lines, at least the one you mentioned in Champlain Hudson, that most of that's underwater. That's underwater. Right? That yeah. pretty much runs underwater the whole way, so you won't yeah. see it. Now, that one that's in the North Plains, that I believe that would be an overhead line three at that yeah. three, three gigawatt rating. Yeah. Or you could run, in theory, you could run two parallel circuits at 1.5 gigawatts as, and put those underground yeah. if you were so inclined to do yeah. so. And that's probably just... I, this might be a stupid question, but with HVDC, do you have to pick one or the other above ground, below ground, or can you have, is it different types of technology to run above ground? There's a couple of different types of technologies. I think there's the converter technology that's, that's okay. could be different. I think line, what is it, LCC, line commutated. I do know that what we're using today for underground cables is voltage source converter technology. And Actually, we used to use thyristors as well. And so now the voltage source converters are, the losses have improved dramatically. The costs have come down. So now the controllability is much better with the voltage source converters. And so that's what's typically being that's used. Easy. Well, definitely for the cables. So when you say if it's a three gigawatt overhead that I can that, run long distance. Yeah, that might be using a little bit different converter technology in its overhead. Got it. Yeah. But don't quote me on that. I'd have to get yeah. you I'd have to get you some information on that. Yeah. But you you mentioned something about hugging a transmission line. Yeah. There's nothing more beautiful than a transmission <laughs> line tower with the sun silhouette behind it I agree. At, at sunset. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. When I when we travel on trips and we're using the car every time my wife sees a substation she goes look <laughs> and i say a thing of beauty yeah exactly we used to go out before we moved down here we lived in an area in outside of seattle where it's this amazing place to go for like brunch and it overlooks this hydroelectric 
plant. It's this amazing waterfall. But then like right next to it is this huge, right next to the valet is this huge substation. And I always used to take my wife to to sit next to the huge substation for our, our romantic dinners. <laughs> it's like we're going to the power plant for dinner. I agree with you. I don't know. So, if the, so entire, the ambience yeah. from the hum of the transformers, right? Yeah, exactly. I just I don't know. That's why I was so excited to talk to you today on this because I was like, there's just not too many people who find the beauty in large-scale industrial power systems like I know you do. Well. <laughs> I feel like there's so many people that it's like connecting these things together between cleaning the grid and having these are massive, as you said, like geopolitical issues that if we could big if this is always like the technologist's viewpoint, right, is if we could just get everyone to see <laughs> that this could work, then everyone would agree. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a there overcoming those issues is where we I don't know. Do you have an idea of how to overcome those issues or do you just put them in that bucket of maybe somebody can I figure think, that out? I think, I think we're making progress. Certainly there's been technology advances. We were talking about HVDC, higher voltages, which means more throughput, lower losses, which means better efficiency. So technologies are continuing to advance, maybe not to the extent that we've seen in terms of price drops for solar PV panels or even the cost of lithium-ion batteries has dropped from where we were 10 years ago dramatically. There are technology advances, and I do think the technology will continue. But I do th- I think policy is an issue. Policy matters. Yeah. And if you look at, for example, the production tax credit, which stopped for wind a number of years ago, and it stopped investment. And so today, I think there's recognition that we need transmission. More and more people are starting to embrace the concept of we need transmission investment if we are going to decarbonize our economy. The government is, regardless of your politics, the government is putting a lot of money behind renewable generation. It's putting a lot of money behind hydrogen. It's putting money behind battery technology. It's even putting money behind modular nuclear Money moves the needle. Hopefully, it it moves the needle efficiently, that we efficiently use this money. But with the production and investment tax credits that are backing renewable generation and some of the incentives behind hydrogen, I think we're going to see changes over the next 5, 10, 10 years. So I think that's what's going to be critical. Can we turn the corner get broader support for the investments that we need in the infrastructure like transmission? And can we close some of the gaps on economics like hydrogen? Green hydrogen is what, $4 a kilogram? With the incentives, you might be down to $1 a kilogram. And now all of a sudden you're on par with gray hydrogen, which then could be used for feedstock or could be used for long-term storage or even just load shifting for electricity. So I think we're going to see those changes, maybe not today, but in the next five to 10 years, I think we're going to see some dramatic changes. Are there incentives in the, in the inflation reduction act for transmission as well or no? I don't actually I'd know. have to check and see. Yeah. I know there's incentives in uh, investment in transmission and the Infrastructure Investment and Job Act, which is also what the bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah. So I know there's segments and sections in there to invest in transmission, both in terms of some of the policy and the backstopping, as well as in reliability and resiliency. Yeah. 
Now, how that money gets funneled, some of the money is going to states, some of the money is going to rural investment, navigating that. We're still working on that. There's a lot of guidance documents which have come out related to the laws, which are basically providing some guardrails for the investments. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question. Unless you have other things no. that you would like to, no. Go ahead. to say. We've covered so much ground here. I think what is super heartening about the conversation we had today is that we don't need miracles, miracle discoveries to figure out how to do these things that like decarbonization or having more resilience against these things. But coming back to the policy question, let's say for a moment you get to wave a magic wand or let's say you go through the process of becoming a politician. I don't think that's on your, no, your on roadmap. Right now, <laughs> and you could propose a bill to speed up the energy transition. What would that bill include? I guess three things, three things jumped to mind. And two of them we've already talked about. Finding a way to, I don't know, address policy or incentives around transmission and also around storage. Transmission to enable movement of power, give the grid flexibility, connect new generation resources. In storage, it just gives you operational flexibility. It really decouples that supply from demand, which always has to be in balance, and it just gives you whether it's capacity firming or shifting generation or shifting load. There's probably eight different use cases for storage, Mm -hmm. but the key thing is it gives you operational flexibility and it decouples consumption from immediate demand. Mm -hmm. And so driving transmission investment, driving storage investment, and the policies behind that and incentives behind that are two things. Mm -hmm. The third one is more controversial. It's should we have a carbon tax? If we want to decarbonize, should we make carbon expensive so that people look at other alternatives and the economic attractiveness of other alternatives increases if carbon becomes more expensive? And so there's a lot of issues associated with that around economic impact, economic justice. But if you really wanted to change things, make carbon more expensive. And But that's not that may not be economically attractive or viable or politically acceptable. Yeah. So I'll fall back to transmission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what you put the carbon tax in there. So you can negotiate against that one and still get your number <laughs> well, one and two. <laughs> I've seen forecasts of the cost of hydrogen. They're looking at the breakpoint between blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, and gray hydrogen. Well, the curve for gray hydrogen was rather than being flat, was showing an escalation. And they said, oh, this is caused by the carbon tax. So they're already baking it in. (laughs) So at least this one source of data was baking in a cost of carbon, which was going to make the economic attractiveness of either blue or green hydrogen that lowers the hurdle, so to speak, where it's now in, it's now more either economically viable or more attractive because the baseline, which is gray hydrogen, is going to increase in cost over time because of some of cost carbon of carbon. Hmm. We'll see if that happens or not, but I, I hesitate to mention that at times because there's a lot of political issues and justice issues associated yeah. with increasing the cost of a key 
you're increasing cost of energy. That's right. that's going in the wrong direction. I think for from an economic point of view, if we can find a way to be the leader in low cost clean energy, yeah, that's a win for everybody. It's, yeah, that's huge. When you were talking about the carbon tax, it occurred to me that probably in, in this report you saw about hydrogen and the different options. It was there is no actual carbon tax, but it's a it's the idea of the it's the Correct. the projected cost to society uh, on climate like if, yeah. Yeah, so there there are associated costs to carbon emissions that do impact the economy from health etc which is one of the reasons for decarbonizing in addition to the impact to climate change because there's obviously impact from the costs of climate change but i don't know that i'm not sure that we have a specific carbon tax yet it's there are costs to the economy associated with carbon emissions mm-hmm. but i don't think we have also said we're going to put a carbon tax on natural gas or anything like that mm-hmm. So the concept could be used literally or more metaphorically. I think in both ways it's useful. When you originally brought it up, it assumed it would be like a literal carbon tax. There, there are certain countries that are looking at that, yeah. and there may be even states in the U.S. that are looking at it. Yeah, there's a partial reason why gasoline is so expensive in California. It's taxed mm-hmm. and it has high taxes on it. Now, whether or not that's to discourage use of gasoline or not, I'm not going to go there. I don't know. Yeah. But that's tricky though, right? Because if you, if you have low income or even fixed income and you can afford a certain amount of gas per month to go to your job and then they say, oh, sorry, it's now going to be 80 bucks to fill up instead of 60 bucks to fill up, then yeah, that's I, coming straight out of yeah. the bottom of the line and right. the person who has to get to their yeah. job. So, so yeah. there are impacts and you yeah. got to make sure that you're not distorting the economy. I mean, just look at when diesel fuel went up to $5 a yeah. gallon. Yeah. And people say, well, that's driving costs of everything because yeah. most things get moved by a truck. Correct. Yeah. And then that drove inflation and inflation yeah. drove the Fed to raise interest rates. Does, has that had a, a zero cost to all of that? An diesel is, cost? Yeah. Diesel isn't just the people who want monster trucks with yeah. big tires. Yeah. I'm always hoping for the technology cost curve to keep coming down and somebody figures out how to leverage that that we're not going to get into this today, but if the technology keeps coming down in price, it disincentivizes people to jump into the stream today and sign a big contract based on today's economics. But let's not forget cellular companies and cloud computing companies have figured out the correct business model to leverage that decline in cost of technology. Let's see an electricity company do that. Please. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. policies that encourage transmission investment, yep. storage investment, and then the continuing, I don't know if you need external drivers for this, but just the digital technology investment. Yeah. The other thing that's also changing the grid is power electronics. Yeah. Batteries, solar, wind, they all get connected to the grid through power electronics. HVDC yeah. is power electronics. So yeah. That's also changing our grid. I have four new episode ideas, by the way. We might have to just keep inviting you back. <laughs> okay, we're going to close on that. Thank you so much for making the long drive over here. Yes, three months. <laughs> no, this was fun. Yeah. Thank you All so right. much. 
Thanks for tuning into this episode of the World Changing Podcast. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, to hear the latest episodes.